Life can take us on unexpected paths that leave us with emotional wounds and scars. But these scars do not have to be a burden that we carry alone. I'm Jocelyn Biederset, a childhood sexual assault survivor, and this is Invisible Scars, a podcast where we connect and learn from those who have come out stronger on the other side of trauma. In today's episode, I have the honor of sitting down with your most requested guest, Kevin Hines. Kevin joins us today to share his incredible story of surviving a suicide attempt off of the Golden Gate Bridge. His passion in sharing his story and changing the narrative around mental health is incredible. Please take into consideration while listening to this episode today that we do discuss suicide and suicide attempts. I can't wait for you guys to hear this episode, so let's get into it. So, Kevin, welcome to Invisible Scars. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to be here with you. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. You know, a couple weeks ago, I actually put up a question box asking my followers and my listeners who they wanted to hear. And by a landslide, it was Kevin Hines, Kevin Hines, Kevin Hines. Oh, you're we me. need to hear Kevin Hines. Yes. That's so I'm incredible. so grateful. Yeah. The the people have spoken. So I'm really the excited to hear have this. Spoken. I love that. <laughs> I love that. You're well, hello to your audience and thank you. Yes, it's awesome to have you. So, um, you know, before every episode, because I love hearing people's stories, I love sharing them with my listeners, you know, talking to different people, they, you give so much insight. And I love to hear from everyone who comes on what you are doing every day, a mantra you're telling yourself, something you do to keep your head on straight every day, to keep you in that positive place. Yeah. So for me, the, the mantra I, I speak to myself every day is one that I've shared with the world. and. A, a phrase that I coined, it, it's be here tomorrow. Um, I still live with chronic thoughts of suicide. They plague me, but I believe they'll never take me. I know they'll never take me because instead of allowing it to become an obsession or an insidious thought or an inescapable thought like it used to be, the first thing I do is find a mirror, any mirror, anywhere and say, my thoughts don't have to become my actions. They can simply be my thoughts. They don't have to own, rule, or define what I do next. And the second thing I do, and these are my two techniques for staying alive with chronic thoughts of suicide, is I turn to anybody in front of me. And if I was here with you and I was suicidal, I'd say it to you, but I mostly say it to my lovely wife, Margaret, who's been my savior on so many occasions, is I say four simple but very effective words. I need help now. And I don't stop asking for help until someone's willing to give it to me. Usually it's my wife, but if I happen to be like, for example, I was once at the Atlanta airport without Margaret and I was suicidal and I stopped a TSA agent and I said, I need help now. And dude was like, what do you mean? And I was like, I'm having these thoughts. And he was like, come with me. And he took me to a locked room, brought in security guards and police officers and did a threat assessment, but I was safe. And, and they got me to Margaret who got me to safety. So what I really believe in, 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 in the issues of, of brain health and suicide prevention uh, is that when you have a moment where you're lucid and you can know some of the things that need to be done to better your brain health. I don't want to invalidate your pain uh, or pacify your pain, but you can let it destroy you or you can let it build you brick by brick from the ground up until you're stronger than ever. I have chosen the latter. And that mantra, be here tomorrow, I live every single day uh, very truthfully. Already I'm hanging on your every word because I truly feel like what you are saying is so powerful. It is so impactful. And it is something that not a lot of people have the courage to say, I need help now. It is something that is so foreign to us. And it feels uncomfortable when you first start doing it. But yeah. God, it, it's it's powerful. It's impactful. And it is so important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and let, let's be honest, for the people that feel like they have no support network or no one to turn to, then here's the deal. You have to become your own best advocate for change. You have to put in the time, the effort, the energy, and the hard work because nothing good ever came without it. And if you don't, things will not change. Nobody's coming to save you. You have to save yourself. And, and that's true. On the flip side, I will say that for all of the people in this world that are sane and well, it is our duty as fellow human beings to see the person in pain and say something kind and compassionate, to just try to make an impact on that person to better their, their life. And to make that point very clear, when I was on the Golden Gate Bridge, ready to leap to my death, all I wanted was for one person to stop me and say, hey, kid, are you okay? 
brother, is something wrong or your pal, can I help you? I would have told that person everything and begged them to help, begged them to save me. Now, I've said this on many platforms and, and we did a, a post on my, uh, on my, uh, YouTube that went uber viral recently. Um, and it was just me mentioning that one portion that I wish someone would have asked me if I was okay. And the backlash I received, which I don't receive on Instagram, but I do receive backlash on YouTube. The backlash I received from people that said, you're a grown man, man up. You know, we don't want to have pity for you. Don't cry for yourself. All these hateful messages, you know, you, you, you need to just handle it yourself. Look, I was 19. I was going through vicious psychosis. I was hearing auditory hallucinations in my head telling me I had to die, that I had no choice, that it was inevitable. I was in the worst place brain pain wise that I'd ever been in up until that point. I was incapable of asking for help myself in that moment. I needed someone who saw me standing there, waterfalls pouring from my eyes, mucus dripping from my nose. I needed someone to reach in. And there's nothing wrong with that. We all need help sometimes. And those people that made those nasty comments, I feel sad for them. I feel bad for them because they don't understand and they hold a lack in empathy for other people's pain. And and I'm I'm I you know I wish them well, yeah. I wish them success, but it, I'm saddened by the fact that they are completely apathetic to the world around them. And I think that social media platforms need to take accountability for that opportunity to destroy another human's life. Mm. And I think that social media, like we do it, can be used for great good and harnessing good in this world. I think that yeah. um, I think that we should not allow that nonsense to go on any longer. And if you are going to go tell someone to kill themselves over and over and over again, and then they do, you need to be held, held accountable. A hundred percent. And you know, I love how passionate you are about this because I am as well. And so much of your story as I was reading it, you know, I had to stop every once in a while because not because it was hard, but because I felt so much of what you were saying and because it really invokes a different way of thinking and how you see things. So I would have to stop and really think about what you were saying and what you, what was coming across because it was just so powerful. And what you said about, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but what you said about wanting just one person to reach out to you, just one person to acknowledge your pain. I've been there and I felt it. And it's, it's powerful. It doesn't matter if you're 19 or 12 or 45, like, we all need that human connection. And that is what is going to keep the world going is like human connection and healing is there. There isn't one without the other. No. And, and really, you know, not just compassion for other people, but self-compassion. Mm. What are you doing to give back and feed your own soul? What are you doing to feed your own heart and let, your, let yourself know that if you fail, if you folly, uh, if you make a giant mistake, if you hurt somebody else, you're a thousand times greater than the worst thing you've ever done, than the worst mistake you've ever made. Move forward, change your perspective, and be kinder to everyone in front of you for the rest of your life until you can't anymore, um, until you leave this earth by natural causes, mm-hmm. never to die by your hands. And, and, and know that your, your purpose on this earth is multifaceted. You have a reason to be here. Find your why so you can find your how. One thing that really fascinated me about you and another thing that really resonated with me was your upbringing and your story at the very beginning. And I felt so connected to you through that. And I would love if you could share with everybody, you know, how you, how you got to this place. Take us back to the beginning. It's, it's an incredible story. Yeah. So I was born in abject poverty. Um, my, my, my birth parents, after they had me and my brother, Succumb to substance use disorder, primary alcoholism, and, and drug addiction. They would they, they neglected us every day, but not because they didn't love us. They neglected us every day to go do score and sell drugs to keep a roof over our heads. That's all they knew. And I look to the the people in America and around the world who live in these food deserts and in poverty, in abject poverty, and they come up with nothing and they have nowhere to go and no one to turn to. They often turn to drugs, alcohol, gangs. We have to look at the bigger problem of society and not 
put so much blame on people who live and come from disease, brain disease. Um, and, and I think we have to be empathetic to their, their plight, my plight, um, and my struggles. Um, so in my situation, uh, I was, my brother and I were being fed Kool-Aid, Coca-Cola, and sour milk from birth in our formative months, which as you know, your gut to brain health is very, very important. Your, your gut microbiome houses and creates all of your bodies and brains, serotonin and dopamine affecting your mental well-being. It's a symbiotic connection between the two, your gut and your brain. And if one is not intact in and well, the other one will not be. And my birth parents, un unbeknownst to them, because the science didn't exist back then, were damaging my brain's functionality at the cellular level and their own. And this would happen at any age, given that kind of food. So uh, from the very beginning, I was by definition mentally ill from the very early stages of my life. Luckily, uh, I was taken in by Pat and Debbie Hines and made to be their son, and they are my mom and dad, and they saved my life, and they gave me the world, but not without that hard work we talked about. My dad had nothing and no one growing up, and he, Patrick, and he, he fought his way to become one of the most pr prominent San Francisco bankers of his time. His career was incredible, and my mom, Debbie, uh, I think she's just retired as a 49, 50 year nurse in San Francisco, having every nursing position you can imagine, starting off in really hard times in the burn unit in the trauma center all those years ago. Uh, and that's a, that's a noble profession for anyone to have. Um, and, I, and, and I love them both dearly and they have their flaws, but they're beautiful people. And they changed my life and my life's trajectory forever. Now, even given that wonderful nurturing, nature would take over. My brain would take over at 17 years of age. I would have a complete mental breakdown and our world, my family's world will, would crumble before us because of my brain. And that's where I want to, I, I want to switch the conversation from mental health to brain health because your brain is tangible. It's as real as the hands in front of my face. If they cut open your skull for surgery, they're going to feel your brain. They're going to touch it. If we stick with this term mental health, it's in the ether. It's up here in the ether. And mental has a negative connotation to the term all by itself. Raise your hand if you would love to be labeled mental for the rest of your life. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, and, and when I say that in an audience of thousands, there'll be, it, 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 maybe in a high school, there'll be some goofy kids that go, I would, you know, but they're just being silly to be different. But really, nobody wants to be labeled mental for the rest of their life. Let's change the conversation. Let's change the language because language matters. It's a brain disease, it's brain health, it's brain health issues, and it's brain struggles and brain pain is what I call it, hashtag brain pain. And when you address your brain health, when you address fixing the things that are wrong in your brain, such as holes in the brain from drug use or alcohol use, or physical blunt trauma to the brain like football or soccer, things like that, and you address how to reignite the brain's healing factors because the brain is very malleable. You can change your brain to change your life as the great Dr. Daniel Amen always says and wrote in his famous book. We have an opportunity to educate ourselves about how to better our brain health to better our lives. And I, I'm on this journey right now doing that with Dr. Amen's help and it's it's been incredible. Um, you know, it's a, it's a gift to be past the time when I lacked in all self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Do I still get there sometimes? Do I still fall off and become less self-aware? And my wife's like, honey, you're manic. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't realize, you know, absolutely. And we try to scale it back and wind it down. Um, but I am, for the most part, self-aware with my brain disease. And I know how to fight it. And I know who to turn to. I know how to ask for help. And I do. And I think teaching that pe to people that that my thoughts don't have to become my actions. If they're negative, spiteful, hateful, rageful, angry, or violent, they can simply be my thoughts. And then I need help now. I think that those two techniques can be used by anyone on the face of the planet. Yeah. You know, what you're saying is so powerful. And when I think about what you're telling me with your brain health and how biologically, you know, you the odds were stacked against you from birth. And the things that were given to you and the way that you were brought up, but also psychologically, the odds were stacked against you because you, I imagine, had abandonment issues from the very beginning, being taken away from your mother. The loss, which we haven't even talked about, is the loss of your brother. And, you know, there's so many 
things that really were stacked against you. So to be sitting here with you today, it is not lost on me that, you know, this is an incredible feat what you've come through. Thank you. I appreciate that. Can we talk about my brother for a minute and, and, I would and, love for to. That aban- and that abandonment from my birth parents? My, my birth parents did not abandon me willingly. I was taken from them. We were taken from them. Uh, we had to be. If we weren't taken from them, we would have died. Um, and it wasn't their fault. They needed help and they weren't getting it. They were in a time when they weren't cared for, they weren't loved, and they weren't appreciated uh, in society. Um, my birth father, half Mexican, half Italian. My birth mom, Jamaican, Black, African, Arawak, Indian, Portuguese, Scottish, Irish, English, and Sephardi Jew. And um, they were left behind in San Francisco. And and so when we were taken from them and bouncing around from home to home, there was one idea that me and my only full-blooded brother would be adopted together. But of course, in, in social services and in foster care in the 1980s, which was in shambles and complete disarray, it was, it was a cluster, you know what? Uh, that didn't a happen. Broken, a broken system. It was a bro- it, it was and is a broken system today. All these, you know, 70 years later, we have, nothing's changed. We bounce around from home to home, supposed to be stay together, and then we both get bronchitis and he dies. And he dies right near me. Yes, I was an infant. For anybody who doesn't understand brain science and, and health science of, of an infant, that's destructive. I was removed before that from my birth mom over five times. When they studied chimpanzees that have been removed from their biological mothers from birth and the ones that stayed with them, the ones that are removed from birth develop brain damage. Yeah. That nurturing from the beginning is crucial. Mine was already jeopardized because my parents were on drugs. Then I was taken away from them five times and then taken away from them permanently. And then both of my birth parents died tragically, very, very tragically from their brains, from their diseases potentially my birth mom from suicide attempt. So, you know, yeah. And then, then my brother, Jordash, they say he looked exactly like me with blonde curly hair. Wow. Jordash, you know, I know I never knew him like I would, like, you know, someone today, but I miss my mom, my dad and, and Jordash. Like I saw them yesterday. I wish they were here. I wish I could tell them I love them. The silver lining in all of this is that I met my birth sister and brother I didn't know I had. My birth mom had a family before mine and my father's. She had a family in Florida and had two kids there. So I have a half brother, half sister. And when I met my half sister and she walked around the corner having one picture of my mom in my presence, she walked around the corner looking the uncanny resemblance of our mom. And all my life growing up, all I wanted, all I really wanted, like the biggest goal in my life, life goals, was to meet my birth mother, tell her three words, I love you. And I would not care for her response because you never know what happens in those adoptive situations, whether a birth parent accepts their, their older child. I didn't care what would happen. I just wanted to tell my birth mother I love her and give her a hug and tell her that. Well, my birth sister, not knowing that that's all I wanted my whole entire life growing up, approached me, hugged me on her own and said, I love you. Wow. Looking looking like the uncanny resemblance of our beautiful mother, birth mother. And and, uh, it was like my, my, the void in my chest melted away and I felt truly free at that moment, more so than I'd ever felt in my entire life. That's incredibly beautiful. And you know, sitting here with you, hearing you talk about this, it is very clear that I am sitting with somebody who has done an immense amount of work to be where you are, you were speaking as somebody who ha- who has done in a tremendous amount of healing. Because with 
the cards you were dealt, it would be very easy for you to be a very jaded person, a very angry person. But for you to sit here and say, you know, they did the best with what they had. I know they loved me. They had no other choice because they didn't know any better. Those I've gone through something very similar with my own birth mother and it's, I'm no longer angry. And I, I see the trauma that they had been through yeah. with the lack of resources and help. So yeah. the work you have done on yourself is has clearly it's impactful for you and the way that you can live your life now, which, you know, you have a loving relationship with your wife and you're spreading this wonderful goodness around the world and trying to help others. And that is the beauty of this. That is like the gift inside these really awful boxes that are given to us, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I I can completely empathize with the people who were born in abject poverty like I was, who never got to get out of it, who never got to see the other side, who never got the adoptive parents to take them in and give them the world. You know, and I I I empathize with all of you who struggle today with finances, who struggle today with finding a job, who whose color of your skin affects the way people look at you when you're applying for a job, who who lack an opportunity chance to survive. But that doesn't mean you can't thrive with the creator economy, with all of the ways to make money online that are that are legitimate, safe, and 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 positive with the ability to go to Google University and learn a trade or a technique that is digital that could bring you out of poverty. We have no excuses. So what I will say is this, fight for your success. Fight to be well. Fight to be here tomorrow, even in your darkest of days and hours. Never give up. Never give in. Never believe that the man is going to hold you down. Screw all that. Go for your goals. I'm part black. I am with you, but you need to hustle, hustle hard and do the, make the right choices to change your life. If you've lived in abject poverty, if you've struggled every single day of your life, that does not mean you don't get to have your beautiful tomorrow. But friend, family, you've got to be here to get there in the first place and you've got to do the hard work because nothing good ever came without it. And that the jaded feeling, the chip on your shoulder, get it, empathize with it, brush that chip off your shoulder and start taking in positive ideation to change your brain, to change your life, to, 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 to find a way to not just survive your pain, but to thrive from your pain, to be mm-hmm. up here at the top level and say, I got this and I'm going to change the lives of everybody in my family that comes after in the next generation. Yeah, I love that. And you know, there's something you said that really stood out to me. And it was that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Like it is, it is not, it does not have to be, you don't have to suffer. No. And this book that you read, uh, The Art of Being Broken, How Storytelling Saves Lives. We've got six contributing authors, one extra story we told them there a seventh story, but six contributing authors, authors from all walks of life who have survived terrible traumas, terrible adversity, overcome. And now they're giving back through this book and through all other avenues to people that are in pain and and struggling. And they're changing people's lives all over the world. So let those stories be a guiding light to you. But next to that, I'm writing my third book right now. Well, I have three books now, but I'm writing my third in the series of Broken. It's called Unbroken. And it's really about releasing the moniker or the label of victimhood and suffering, taking away the idea that I'm a sufferer and taking away calling myself or feeling like a victim, even if I've been victimized. Even if you've been victimized, if you stay in that thought process that you are a victim, if you stay in that thought process that you are suffering, my friends, that is all you will ever be. You will never grow. You will never succeed. You will never truly thrive. But if you find and harness the darkness you've experienced in your life and you will that darkness to the light, you can achieve anything your heart desires. I know this because I've done it. And and you can find the right people in your life that will support you because of your dreams, aspirations, and visions for your future and what you need to, to yeah. be that thriving person. Mm-hmm. It's so true. And once you really start to heal from those things and let go of that pain and let go of that, I'm a victim to I'm a survivor, all those people that you want in your life, you start attracting them. They start coming to you. And I truly believe that. And, you know, I want to get into 
how you got to where you are now. And, you know, we can't do that without talking about September 25th, 2000. And I would really love for you to kind of walk us through that day. Sure. That day. uh, Well, let's go to the day before the 24th. Yeah. The 24th, I sat at my desk with my father, Patrick, in the very next room, writing a note. A note to everybody I loved, telling them I was sorry and asking for forgiveness. I put that note in my shoulder bag, that shoulder bag by the door. At six in the morning on the 25th, I entered my father's room. I startled him awake. He asked me if something was wrong. I lied through my teeth. And that day, I convinced my dad, Patrick, that I was fine. He tried to reach me. I convinced him that I was fine. And I eventually made my way out to the Golden Gate Bridge on a bus, hoping, wishing, and praying that one person would see my pain and say something kind and compassionate. Instead, the only person to react to me yelling aloud on a crowded bus filled with people, leave me alone. I'm a good person, but I don't want to die. Why do you hate me so much? What did I ever do to you? hundred people heard me. hundred people began staring at me. This guy says, what the hell's wrong with that kid with a smile on his face while laughing at my pain? He could have been the guy to say, what's wrong and can I help you? But he wasn't. And trolls, I invite you. Say whatever you're going to say to this piece. That's your problem, not mine. I'm not going to own that. I know I needed help that day. I could, and nobody gave it to me. And that's, yes, my life is my responsibility, but suicide prevention is all of our responsibilities when we are well insane. Bus gets to the Golden Gate Bridge. I walk out to the Golden Gate Bridge walkway. I pace back and forth for 40 minutes, crying like a child. Bikers, joggers, tourists, runners go by me. Patrol officers searching for suicidal people go by me twice. Those officers hadn't been trained in prevention. They are today, and today they save between 50 and 120 lives, and that's incredible. The work they do is amazing. Wow. But they did not have that protocol for me. I find myself at a particular light rail. I lean over, crying my tears to the waters below. A woman sees me, approaches me, smiling. I think, this is it. This lady is going to save me. I stake my life on what she's going to say next. She pulls out a digital camera and says, will you take my picture? Oh. Now, maybe, maybe maybe that was her way to reach me in her own way. We, we'll never know. Maybe in, in her foreign language, she was trying to connect. We'll never know. I took her picture several times. She walked away. I leapt off that bridge. I fell 250 feet, 25 stories, closing in on 75 miles an hour, nearing the speed of terminal velocity in four seconds. In those four seconds, I called out to God to live. I had had faith in God my whole life. I lost him on top of that bridge. My father is fond of saying in front of his banker buddies at events, jokingly, he found him on the way down. (laughs) (laughs) We can laugh at that. We can laugh at that. We can laugh at that. Hit the water. You hit the water at 15,000 pounds of pressure. Most people die upon impact. I went into the water 40 feet or so. I opened my eyes. I was drowning. I didn't know which way was up or down. I started to swim in the wrong direction. I eventually make my way back to the surface. I break the surface. I bob up and down in the water, gasping for air. I go down. I can't get back to the surface. I think I'm. I think this is it. This is where I go. I'm going to drown here, and no one's going to know that I didn't want to. No one's going to know I knew I made a mistake. And that's when something very small, very large, and very slimy and very alive begins circling beneath me. I thought you got to be kidding me. I didn't <laughs> die jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, and a shark's going to eat me. Perfect. <laughs> and those those are great white breeding grounds, so that's possible. It oh, turned gosh. out, yeah, it turned out it was no shark at all. It was, in fact, a sea lion. And that's Herbert right there, the sea lion on, my, on the bottom of my shirt. Oh, this cre- my This creature gosh. right here, this, and we'll send you one of these shirts afterwards. The sea lion, Herbert, saved my life that day. The Coast Guard saved my life that day. Thank God for the Coast Guard. They see so much trauma and deal with so much hardship. We appreciate them. And, and the doctor, Dr. Jonathan Levin and his team saved me the ability to stand, walk, and run. They did a surgery on me that is the first and only of its was the first and only of its particular kind. It has now saved the backs of 13 more people. The exact surgery he invented for me has saved the backs of 13 other people. Only five of the Golden Gate Bridge jump survivors, however, get to stand, walk, and run. They call us the most exclusive survivors club in the world. We get to be here. Yeah. And getting to be here is a privilege and a gift, no matter the pain you might be in. It's a matter of perspective. How do you see the world is up mm-hmm. to you. Yeah, it is so true. And as you're telling this story, you know, I think everyone who's listening has been to that 
brink of, I feel like there's no way out. And I'm so curious, what got you to that point? What made you get to that point where you wrote that letter and you stood on that bridge? Two words, I've said them before, brain pain. My brain was in so much turmoil. The voices, the auditory hallucinations I was hearing were constant, overbearing, overwhelming. And because I didn't tell anybody about what they were saying, I could not get the help I needed, truthfully. I was mm-hmm. seeing a psychiatrist. I was having, I had parents that tried to help me. I had family members that intervened in my psychosis. What I didn't have was the words to articulate my pain. To have someone near me say, we need to get you more help than you're getting. We need to be with you in this moment right now. My dad tried to reach me that morning. It was not his fault what I did. He was there for me. He called the doctor the night before who dismissed my situation, who said, Kevin's going to be fine. It's just another episode. It'll be, he'll be out of it in a couple of days. How nearly dead wrong was that doctor? I'm so lucky and blessed to be alive from what I did when 99.9% of the people who jump off the Golden Gate Bridge are gone. I'm here. I'm talking to you right now. I'm talking to your audience. What a blessing. What a gift. And, you know, whether you believe in God or don't, that's up to you and all your listeners. I have complete faith. And my faith has carried me since my jump till now in a way that allows me to thrive every day. And you don't have to have faith in God like I do. But damn it, have faith in yourself. Have faith in the human condition and have faith in your ability to survive any pain or trauma or struggle that comes your way. Because if you believe you can survive, then friend, you always will. Mm-hmm. No that matter is what. so true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is so true. And you know, following, following your attempt, I, I'm so curious how that affected your family and how they showed up for you and what were your next steps? You know, it really affected my, my family. My, my brother, he was 13. I learned that day that he actually did look up to me because he was broken. He said, how could you do this to us? We love you. I hate you. And he walked out the room of the hospital. My dad showed up. This is a man who played years of semi-pro hockey as the goalie with no mask. He was the toughest Sunset Irishman you'd ever meet. He came in and he was bawling like a baby. And he said, Kevin, I'm sorry. Guilt. I said, no, dad, I'm sorry. He came over to my left side, kissed my forehead and said, Kevin, you're going to be okay. I promised they had given him a 50-50 chance I'd live through the night. My mom came in and she was so positive. She's the most positive person you can imagine, most optimistic woman you'll ever meet. And she said, Kevin, I guess God wanted you to win that Oscar. And I told her, Mom, <laughs> I did high school and college theater. I don't see how that's going to happen, but thank you. You know, my sister came in and just told me she loved me. And, and they, you know, here, the thing that I'll tell you of how it affected them. It affected them in a very bad way because uh, the, the trauma they lived through and the, the constant fear they have of me dying by suicide is very real. My actions did that. And I have to take responsibility for my actions, which is why I call them on a regular basis to tell them I'm safe. Yeah. Which is why I let them know at every turn that I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through this because I'm going to be open about it. From now on, always be truthful about my pain. Never hold my pain in again. Never silence my pain or bury my struggles. I'll tell the truth. Uh, And they appreciate that. My dad, when I asked him in our film, Suicide, the Ripple Effect, which is out now to me on demand. When I asked my dad if he still fears my death by suicide, he actually asked me to turn the camera off. And he said, Kevin, and he grabbed his hand to his pocket. He said, every time the phone rings. He didn't say what I call him. When the phone goes off in his pocket, when anybody calls him, even today, 23 years later, his first and every thought is Kevin alive. Yesterday was the 23rd anniversary of my attempt off the Golden Gate Bridge. And my father still believes that someday he's going to lose his son to suicide. I have to be responsible to let him know that is never going to happen. Yeah. So he can sleep at night, you know? And mm-hmm. I look at families who have lost their children to to suicide all over the world, their children you should never lose your child before you, before it's time. And I look at families who really appreciate that I'm alive 
to be there for my parents and vice versa. And, mm-hmm. and I see these families who are, are, are going to be in a world of pain for the rest of their lives. There's no getting around it. You yeah. can't move on from suicide. You can't. Anybody who tells you you can move on from suicide is lying. You can look to the living, those who still remain here, and find ways to move positively forward, but you can't move on. And that's the difference between any other means of death, is that it's so visceral, it's so palpable, it leaves you with a dark spot, in, a dark hole in your chest forever. I've yeah. lost 17 people I care deeply about to suicide, and that's 17 too many. I think yeah. about them every single day. I think about the last conversation we had before they died all the time. I don't hold guilt in that space. Not anymore. Push, I pushed that off my shoulders a long time ago. But I feel for their direct family and friends who sit in that grief every day wondering what they could have done. So to everybody listening, viewing, watching right now, subscribing, they did not die because of you or in spite of you. They died because of a lethal emotional pain that had nothing to do with you. Take that guilt off your shoulders. Take away the blame game you're playing with your family and find ways to look to the living to move forward. And one last thing, celebrate their lives on their birthday like you would celebrate if they were here Mm. with a cake and candles. And on that day, you're only allowed to talk about the good times. Yeah, that is so beautiful. And I love that you just said that. And you know, when I... When I listen to you talk about, you know, it's on you to own what you put your family through and it's on you to, you know, let them know you're safe and and try and ease their fears a little bit. The flip side of that, Kevin, is how incredibly loved you are. And, you know, not everybody has that that honor, right? And I'm just so proud of you. And I just, how, they're not even your, you know, biological parents and not to say that that love isn't the same because I know that it is I come from a similar situation but that love is so deep because they chose you and it's it's incredible that you have that and the person I'm sitting with today and what I'm hearing from who you were at 17 and prior to that I just you know, you were meant to be here. This is exactly what you were meant to be doing. And this happened for you, not to you. And you were doing incredible things for everybody who is listening, the people you are reaching out to. And from the moment you ended up in the hospital, when they recovered you and they brought you and your healing journey began, because I imagine it's still going. And you know, what happened in that time to get you here, to get you to the point where you said, you know what, I want to give back. I'm here for a reason. Holy shit. I have a second chance. Yeah, I'm going to do this. What got you there? To address the first point to all the people that didn't have the love and care I had, the support network I had, not only can you be your best advocate, but you can be your own best self-love individual. You can be the one that changes the, the, your inner critical voice. Mm-hmm. change the thought pattern in your brain to be more kind and compassionate to yourself and you will change your life. Yes. And I actually am a example of that. I am that yeah. person that didn't yeah. have that. And I yeah. had to reprogram. Yep. And that's possible because of how malleable the brain is. So, if, you know, if you live that life just like you do and have, I think you can, you can still succeed and thrive. But how I got there, so, so I had one of my, my favorite uncle on my mom's side came into the hospital one day on a special admin against visiting hours and said, kid, when you, if you don't take 100% responsibility for the fact that you have this brain disease and fight it tooth and nail, ain't nothing going to change. And I was in complete denial that I had bipolar and I, I didn't want to talk about it or deal with it or, or, or fight for myself. If you don't change this, nothing's going to change. You'll be in and out of these places for the rest of your life. Is that what you want? I said, no, Uncle George. He said, well, get it together, kid. We're counting on you. And he dropped a Time Magazine article on the table from 2004. And that was the year I was in that third psych ward stay of 10. And he said, read this article and get your shit together. And he left abruptly. I was like, you're not my favorite uncle anymore. But he was like, (laughs) and I picked up the magazine on the cover. It read something to the effect of how to fight bipolar depression, mental illness, and and depression with routine and regimen and win. I'm like, routine and regimen? My doctors never, three of my psychiatrists, first psychiatrists never told me routine and regimen could defeat brain pain. 
So I go to my room. I, I'm looking, I'm staring at this magazine in anger at my uncle, like that jackass, you know? And then I pick it up and I read the article twice. And I put words of this routine idea building into action. I sat in my room and I thought the entire article, I was like, okay, well, if I, I'm pre-diabetic and well overweight, I need to fix that. So I'll get a nutritionist in the hospital. I'll start eating better. So I started doing that. And then I was like, okay, I need to go to therapy. Oh, I need to be honest in therapy. Who knew that was a good idea? Started doing that, started seeing, getting to the root of the problems and doing the work, like you said earlier. And then I went to the nursing station. I was like, hey, could I have, could I go to your gym facility? And they're like, gym facility? This is a psych ward. I said, well, every psych ward should have a gym. It's in the magazine. So I started, you know, I was a WCL <laughs> wrestling champion and my football team went to state. So I was like, get to the ground and get to work. And I started getting to the ground, getting to work. And I started feeling so incredibly better with all these, just these three things. And then I went to the nursing station and I was like, look, I need to sleep better. I'm, I'm an insomniac in this hospital. And I've been an insomniac for some time. It's what led me into the hospital in the first place with psychosis from insomnia. What do mm -hmm. I do? And one of the nurses brought me a CD player when CDs were still a thing. <laughs> and it was whale, ocean, and rainforest noises to for, for better sleep patterns for people with insomnia. I started playing it 20 minutes before I went to bed every night. I was out in less than two weeks in that two-month psych ward stay. I had an incredible turnaround from self-aberrant violent behavior where I was punching the walls until my hands bled and being stuck with Halidol in the rear to be put to sleep because of it to complete calm, even keel, and brain stable, brain stable. And I did all these things. And then I get out of the psych ward and I write my plan down, my 10-step regimen, which I call the art of wellness. Now the Art of Wellness 2.0, you can find it at youtube.com slash Kevin Hines, the Art of Wellness 2.0, 10 steps with a mental health emergency plan at the end, all to benefit your brain health. Mm. It can help nearly anyone on the planet. It's, the steps are science-backed, evidence-informed, proven to change your brain, to change your life. Take them. They're free. They're yours. Thousands Amazing. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people use them around the world from as far as Peru, Africa, China, Japan, Canada, UK, Ireland, and beyond. And when they write to me, they say the same thing. In six to nine months, they see a dramatic improvement in their brain health. Yeah. You know, as you're telling me this, all I'm thinking is on a psych ward, you're right, there should be a gym. There should be somewhere where you have somewhere where you can move and feel good and get those good hormones going. But these things weren't brought to you by anyone that's in the medical industry. It You had to advocate for yourself. You had to dig fricking deep. And that blows my mind that these things are not at the forefront of healing. And I just, it blows my mind. So many uh, up and coming facilities are building these things into their programs. Uh, the Mindy Levine Center, um, mm -hmm. Hope Way in North Carolina, they're all doing great work. Uh, to make your entrance into a psychiatric unit a beautiful experience. Let me right. tell you a quick story, real quick story. In the seclusion room in the Mindy Levine Center, there's a instead of you being locked and shackled to a, 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 a wooden box with no pillow, no comfortability, and you can't move and you're restricted and you feel horrible. You feel, again, traumatized to the bones. They have a lazy boy, a beautiful protected fish screensaver, yeah. and safe colored pens that you can write how you feel on the wall. And people's fear that built this were like, oh, they'll write crazy things on the wall. No. Thank you. For, I, I read them myself. I was in there reading these Sharpie markers. Thank you for not shackling me to the ground. Thank you for letting me feel free and safe in this room. Thank you for the calming music. Thank you for the, the visions on the screen. And thank you for taking care of me and not fearing me. Thank you for your empathy. Oh, drawn all over every one of the walls. You know, uh, we have an opportunity in this country to make every ward like the Mindy Levine Center and to have parents come in and be addressed by peer counselors who were just in that ward who say, this is the process your child or loved one's going to go through. And we're going to walk you through the whole thing. And even though HIPAA privacy laws are a very real thing, we're going to try to get your release form signed so you can be privy to so-and-so's treatment so you can be there for them if you're in a good family. So doesn't this make you think though, Kevin, that the stigma behind mental health 
and people being afraid to be honest about how they're feeling, the thoughts that they're having, their manic episodes. Because if you're honest, it's like you're being punished. It's not safe for you to be honest if you're going to these types of facilities. You're actually being punished and re-traumatized. Yeah. And yeah. these facilities you're talking about that are kind of changing the way that they're doing things, I'm it, it baffles me that it's, you know, 2023 and it's only starting to happen now. Um it it really is not lost on me that you know, we're creating the art the stigma around it and then punishing people for being honest yeah. for asking yeah. for help and how they're really yeah. feeling. The levels of stress and pain and trauma that occur inside wards are incalculable and have been for decades, maybe centuries. Um, that comes from a place where mental health was not stigmatized and it is not now. It's discriminated against. It's discrimination, pure and simple. Stigma is not strong enough of a word, just like mental is not the better word. No. It's brain pain. It's discrimination. And people like you and me have the power through, the, through our platforms to reach people at levels of change that can make a difference, like the people at Mindy Lament Center, at Hope, Hope Way, and other places like that. And I think that this is part of our mission, right? This is part of our mission to reach as many people as we can. And I'm grateful for your platform and for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, hearing these stories, it it is what breaks my heart. It's why I wanted to do this. And it's, you know, something I've never shared on here. In my first two episodes, I shared my own story of trauma. But something I've never shared is when I started to go through a really deep healing process in the last year, I actually got to a point with my therapist where I felt safe enough to say, um, you know, and before I said it, I actually made it very clear. I'm scared to say this to you because I'm scared of what might happen to me. But my entire life from young until now, I've had this woman's voice in my head screaming at me, not unsimilar to what you had, just telling me I wasn't worthy, screaming things I couldn't understand. And it was deafening. There were times where I just, you know, I couldn't live with it anymore. And I was yeah. so afraid to tell her because I was afraid of what would happen to me. Yeah. And something really magical actually happened in that process. And she was like, you know, you're not, first of all, you're not crazy. It, this is from deep trauma from, you know, what's going on in your brain, what's happened to you chemically, what's happened to you emotionally and physically, and it's okay. And let's, let's talk about it. Let's name it. And as I started talking about it, you know, she's gone, she's no longer there. And sometimes I feel her creep in a little bit, but I have those tools to be able to decide if I want to listen, if I want to numb it out, how I'm going to do this, you know, and it's a really powerful thing to talk about it. And you doing that, you know, I can't imagine the people listening right now that just are saying like, oh my gosh, that's me, but I'm scared to say it. Oh my gosh, that's me, but I'm scared. You know, you're giving people a voice and that's incredible. If you are out there watching right now and you have auditory hallucinations and voices in your head, do not keep it to yourself. No, it's not your fault. You didn't want it to happen. It comes from trauma. It comes from every spiteful, hateful, hurtful, rageful, mean or negative thing ever said or done to you. It's not, a, it, it's a part of you, but it mm -hmm. doesn't have to own you. Don't let it own you. Get the help you need so you can survive it and drive from it and tell that voice if it's negative that they don't get to determine your next move. Yes. You, you do. You do. Yeah, that is so powerful. It's true. You do. And you know, there's, I have so many questions for you, but back to I think that we need, day. I think we need to do a part two. <laughs> I know, I know. So, you know, one thing I do want to ask you though, Kevin, is yeah. you no longer live in San Francisco, but it, you, I, you said it's your favorite city. You, you and your wife loved San Francisco. Yeah. There was a lot of painful things that happened there and yeah. you made the choice to leave. My question is, after that day, I imagine for your family, having to cross that bridge was tremendously triggering. And I, yeah. how, what was that like for you? So I went back to the bridge a year after my attempt, the date of my attempt, the time of my attempt with my father. Wow. And we dropped a flower over the rail and it wafted down very slowly and hit the water, made the tiniest of ripple effects and two feet to the right popped up a sea lion. No. Yes. Yes. And it was arguably the most beautiful, gorgeous moment I've ever spent with my dad next to him being the best man at my wedding. And there was no other chance, choice. Um, it was, it was, uh, it was magical. Uh, whether it was Herbert or not is not the point. It felt like it was. Oh. It was a, it was a symbol of hope to say, 
you're on the right path. Keep helping change lives. Keep helping save lives. And I don't own the, look, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have told me that my story saved their life. Mm-hmm. I don't own that. I never saved a life. I'm no savior. I'm a conduit. I give a message. I give a word. People hear that word. They hear that message. They go home. They tell their mom and dad that they're struggling. They go to their doctor. They say, I think I have depression. I need help. They go and they ask for a change or they make a change that day and they're saving and changing their own life. And they just need to give themselves more credit, you know? And I'm always an advocate for that. But it doesn't negate the fact that it doesn't negate the fact that that they heard something that elicited a response to affect a change. And, and I can be confident that they would not have made that change had they not heard, read, or seen the story on a podcast like this. Yeah, it's so true. It is so true. And this will be your legacy. My, you know, I'm just so grateful to exist. I'm so grateful to be anywhere. And, and I take stock in every place I get to go, everything I get to do because it almost didn't happen, every person I get to meet. So my greatest gift today is sitting here talking to you. So thank you very much for this platform. Oh, thank you. And you know, I wanted to touch on something for everyone who's listening um, that I felt was important to hear. And I was reading through your book and it's powerful. And something you said was something along the lines of, I am not recovered. I am recovering. And I think this is so profound and so important for other trauma survivors to hear because, you know, it's okay and completely normal to slip back into these thoughts and moments and these intrusive thoughts. And it's so easy to feel like you're failing, you know, and there are days from even myself that are, that are bad. And I've come so far from, from point A to where I am now, I have come so freaking far. And there are times where I feel low and all my work is undone and I have to start back over. And I'm like, I don't have it in me. I don't have it in me. But the key takeaway is I'm recovering because now I have these tools to not stay as long. And, and I know now, and I realize that that's just not true. And I imagine that there is a lot of people listening who give up on themselves and believe they failed and that there's no hope. But the truth is you're in recovery and now you have the tools. So please don't give up because it's not going to be as painful every time or as long every time. Right. And I just thought that was so important that you said that, that you are not recovered. You are in recovery. Yeah. Don't look at your failures as utter failures. They are just your steps to continual recovery. I'm in recovery from my brain pain, like someone's in recovery from substance use disorder. I got to go through this in some way, shape, or form every day. I will continue. I will survive. I will thrive. I will be in recovery likely for the rest of my life. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you relapse, whatever you're dealing with mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, addiction-wise, it's not the end. It's just another new beginning. Mm -hmm. Get back on the horse. Get back up on those stairs. Get back up on that escalator. I don't care what it is, an elevator, and just keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. Don't hold yourself in that in that space where I'm a failure. I have failed and I can do nothing about it. No. Take the failure as a lesson. Failure is the greatest life lesson we will ever know because it teaches us when we succeed to be humble and to recognize that anyone can do anything that they believe in that's positive. It's so true. And you're right. The looking back at the lessons through those failures is so important. Like that has been the greatest gift in my life, honestly, is looking back at the lessons I've learned and how far I've come, how much my mindset has changed, right? It's important. So, you know, here you are and I want to know, and I know everyone listening wants to know, what are you doing today? to help keep yourself in recovery. What does yeah. that look like for you every day? Like, how are you showing up for yourself? Yeah. Uh, exercise three to six times a week without fail. Eat anti-inflammatory foods, most meals, most days. Um, talk to my therapist, tell her the truth. Yeah, uh, talk that's to my key, right? The, 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 honestly, the biggest thing I found is just talking to my wife. Um, mm. We have a relationship that's incredible. Um, 
We've been together, married for 16 years, together for 19. She's my rock, my greatest gift, love my life. And we'll be together for the rest of our lives doing this work together. So I have found a companion uh, that, that keeps me stable, honest, humble, and hungry. And I'm not saying that to brag about my love life. You don't need to find a companion like that, but find that person that's willing to empathize with your pain so that when you're not doing the work you have to do at, at work or with your families, you can get that person that can really be present for you and check you when you're making a mistake. And mm-hmm. say, hey, you know, you need to be more present in this society, in this world, and you need to be off your phone a little more, and you need to just, you need to get down and give me fifty push-ups if you're having a bad manic experience. Um, whatever the situation is, they can be a guiding light to your struggle. Yeah. And and uh, I do so many things for my brain health, but I really do follow still that ten step regimen. So YouTube.com/slash Kevin Hines. There are yes. eight hundred eight hundred plus videos on there to help you better balance your brain health. Take them; they're yours. Um, That's amazing. But that particular, The Art of Wellness 2.0 can really help. That's amazing. You know, I'm curious too, because we talk a lot on this podcast about, you know, healthy eating and being intuitive and all this stuff. And I've had a big conversation with other trauma survivors around alcohol and the effects on your brain and how that affects your anxiety and your manic episodes and all of this. And I'm really curious where you fall on that spectrum. Yeah. uh, in, 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 In my high school years up till 21, I, 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 I think a handful of times, probably five times, binge drank until blackout on the weekend. The last couple of those times I got alcohol poisoning. Um, and I was in danger of making that a habit. So on my 21st birthday, I did that. I got alcohol poisoning. I came home and I never drank again. I have not had a sip of alcohol since my 21st birthday. And um, when I did work with Dr. Amen and he studied my brain, um, the one thing he made clear and he makes clear to everyone is that no amount of alcohol is good for you because, yeah, there's there's studies that say that a glass of red wine a week is, is beneficial, but alcohol is a toxin. It toxifies, most importantly, the brain. Weed is an inflammatory. It inflames the brain. It Mm -hmm. swells the brain. Both of them in long-term use, no matter who tells you otherwise, no matter how many people legalize it, damage your brain's functionality at the cellular level. No matter who, what big hip-hop star is using it every day and succeeding and thriving beyond belief, their brain is still not, not doing great, no matter how successful they are. So you can look to that or you can make a decision to exit that from your life through hard work, effort, and recovery because it's damaging, period. And I've learned this. I've seen the studies. I've done the research. I'm telling you as someone who's been there in alcohol poisoning that you can live without alcohol, you can live without drugs, and you can live a much better, more effective, more positive, powerful, life-changing existence. I'm so glad I asked you this question because I really truly feel the same way. And it's been, you know, pivotal in my own healing journey. And I think that it's like the only drug that we're pressured to do. Like it's, it's a very strange relationship that our society has with alcohol. And I do see a shift happening. And I think with mental health and anxiety and, you know, bipolar and all these things that we're seeing show up in people, it's important to separate yourself because it's detrimental. And and if you're taking medication for psychiatric meds while using alcohol or, or weed, you are really putting yourself in a very scary mm-hmm. situation yeah. that could end very dangerously. So mm-hmm. learn about it before you, it's so as true. you're going through it. Yeah. Educate, educate yourself. Someone reached out to me on Instagram the other day and said, you know, I'm having a very hard time. Like, I don't know where to begin. And we talked a lot about therapy and stuff, but for me, step one is removing the things that you can control. Alcohol is one and it's a depressant and it's going to hold you back. Like let's, you know, I'm really glad I asked you that, you know, Kevin, is there any final thoughts you would love to share with our listeners? This has been such an incredible conversation. Thank you very much, Jessalyn. I really appreciate that. And I'll tell you this last, I'll say this last few things. Um, Wes Watson is a, is a very interesting public figure. And he says, whatever you regret, if you do something in the moment and you regret it, Alcohol, drugs, addictions of any kind. Remove that from your life. 
anything you regret doing to yourself or someone else, get it out of your life. It's not worth it. It's destroying you. You're self-sabotaging. So I love, I love that part of what he says. And, and I think that applies to everybody. You regret it, get it out of your life immediately. Uh, and just make it a habit to not do it. Find, find something that you can repeat like an exercise that's positive, hopeful, filled with light or productivity and good, good, and make that a, a repetitive step, you know. But that, that, that being said, if you're struggling right now and you live in America, text or call 988, the crisis lifeline. Text CNQR to 741-741, the crisis text line. Um, if you are outside of the U.S., suicide.org has all the lifelines that you need to connect to um, and tell your truth to someone willing to empathize so you can move forward. And don't stop asking for help until you get it because you deserve it. And whatever you do, be here tomorrow. And every single day after that, you are loved, you are valued, you are worthy, and you matter. And you matter to us on this podcast. And if nobody else says it today, we love you. We want you to stay. Oh, that's such a beautiful way to end it. Thank you so much, Kevin. Where can everybody find you? Where can they get your book? Because it is a must read. Okay, real simple. At Kevin Hines Story across all socials, youtube.com slash Kevin Hines, kevinhinesstory.com. Uh, and, and, and the book is at kevinhinesstory.com slash shop, plus all of our merch and shirts and hoodies are there too. And the funds we bring in from those, we put right back into suicide prevention. So you're only helping us help a lot more people. Your work is amazing. And it was such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesslyn. Take care. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that today's episode provided insight, inspiration, and comfort to anyone who is dealing with the effects of trauma. Remember, you are not defined by your scars and you are not alone in your healing journey. If you enjoyed listening, please make sure to rate, review, and share this episode with a friend who could benefit from listening. We'll see you next week. 